Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories. And I have a blog that you can check out, and the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right, today is Saturday, February 12th, 2022. And in this episode, we're going to analyze the Power Five's quest for autonomy status and legislation under the NCAA umbrella, which it got in 2014. And through that campaign for further independence under the NCAA umbrella and further separation of the big-time powerful football's interests from the rest of the NCAA, the Power Five essentially got an association within an association. And there were some limitations on that independence, though, that now are not really in play with this new constitutional makeover. What I want to do in this episode is to walk you through the Power Five's quest for autonomy legislation and uh, the autonomy classification in 2013-2014, and then take a look at how that template, that blueprint, was applied in 2021 and into 2022 with this new Constitution Committee. And the similarities are striking, just striking. And in my episodes on the Constitution Committee and the Division I Board of Directors Transformation Committee, I referenced the autonomy legislation and the Power Five's quest for autonomy as really the template for what was happening in this constitutional makeover. But I, I made those um, comparisons with a broad brush and didn't really get into the details. We're going to get into the details in this episode. And I just want to note that back when I was doing my pay-for-play series, I talked at length about this period, 2013 to 2014. It is so important. And I think when you compare what happened then to what is happening now, and you see the similarities on so many levels, I think that that period is probably more consequential than I've given it credit for. Obviously, I anchored on it when I was going through the history of college sports and the relationship of the institutional interest to the athlete interest. But I think on the backside of whatever happens in this perfect storm, the period of 2019 to the present, I think that when we look back historically, we may see this period, 2013-2014, as even more important. And I also want to point out, I did those episodes in May of 2021, 10 months ago. And the first episode, episode 21, I did on May 7th, episode 22, I did on May 16th, and then episode 23, I did on May 24th. And you could go back and uh, check those out if you'd like. But importantly, that was well before we had any discussion about the constitutional makeover. And it was before Austin. It was before the NCAA really got turned away in Congress and then went belly up on name, image, and likeness and dumped all their nil garbage at the feet of the institutions the day before uh, these state nil laws were going into effect. So we didn't have the benefit of any of that in the context. And that's why it's important now, having seen what this Constitution Committee was doing behind the scenes and then looking at its work product and now looking at the formation of this Transformation Committee and how they have identified their task going forward. And they've been pretty vague about that, and we still haven't gotten any information yet from that committee. But when you look at that, and now you, you look back to autonomy, which was clearly and 
purposefully a power five power grab, I think you have to concede, even if you're a true believer, even if you have been drinking the Kool-Aid your whole life and you're going to spout the talking points, the NCAA Power Five talking points, I think when you look at what happened with this Constitution Committee, what the new Constitution looks like, and then you uh, reach back to the autonomy campaign, you have to concede that what happened has happened in 2021-2022 through this Constitution Committee is just another Power Five power grab. And uh, to contextualize both the autonomy movement in 2013, 2014, and then this constitutional makeover in 2021, 2022. I want to reach back to the very premise of this entire podcast. In, in, in my very first episode, I uh, talked about how I saw this whole perfect storm of amazing events that kind of came together to create this transformative era in college sports. I said that the principal issue here is not necessarily whether athletes should be paid or how much they should be paid or how you characterize their relationship to the institutions. The real question is who gets to decide. And when you look historically at the powerful football interests, aggressive acquisition of power at the regulatory level, it's clear that they think that they should be calling the shots. Now, this ran through the NCAA in the Senate campaign in 2019. Now it's running through the Power Five under the NCAA umbrella. But as I have said in prior episodes, the NCAA is nothing more than a puppet for the Power Five football interest. And there's no question that that is the case now. So at the voluntary regulatory level right now, the Power Five conferences are running college sports and running the NCAA. And I, I talked all about that in my episodes on the Constitution Committee, and you can go back and check those out as well. So before I get into breaking down the autonomy campaign and identifying the documents I'm going to use to do that, I want to paint with a bit of a broader brush to talk about some of the uh, similarities between 2013, 2014, and what happened in 2021 and what's going to likely happen in 2022. First of all, the, the broadest theme, it, it goes to that question of who gets to decide. This autonomy move was a way for the Power Five to basically say they want to shift power from the NCAA or the rest of the membership to the Power Five to isolate it to the Power Five so that the Power Five can do their own thing and be left alone and not have to bother with the rest of the NCAA and do that under the NCAA umbrella, having their cake and eating it too. And that obviously hasn't changed. That was the purpose of this constitutional makeover. The other similarity is that the external threats were nearly identical. Because in 2013-2014, you had uh, labor issues flaring up with this Northwestern case. You had the, the question of whether athletes were going to be deemed employees under federal law. You had federal litigation. You had the O'Bannon case coming to a crucial point that influenced what happened in 2013-2014. You had the NCAA under siege, really. And I'm going to talk more about that in, in a minute. And the atmosphere out in the general public and in the sports world was very similar. When you go back and read the articles that were written around all these issues, these 
firestorm issues, including the autonomy legislation, you really get the same kind of feeling of uncertainty and chaos and what's going to happen next that exists right now. And I think that's really important because when you look at how all these firestorm issues played out after 2014, you you see that really the status quo prevailed and the big time power brokers in college sports got through that firestorm relatively unscathed. And for the Power Five, they came out of it. They took that chaos and turned it into opportunity and a massive power grab through this autonomy legislation. And I think the Power Five did the same thing in 2021 on the backside of the Austin decision, on the backside of the NCAA's debacle on name, image, and likeness, and on the backside of the NCAA's failure in the Senate to get any of the protections or immunities that they were asking for beginning in February of 2020. And you had Bob Gates, when he formed this Constitution Committee, saying that the NCAA was in a battle for relevance. The NCAA was reeling. So the the Power Five come in and they just uh, finish off the power play. And when you look at the agenda items that were on the table in 2013-2014 and, and how similar they are to the agenda items that were on the table in this constitutional makeover and what the Power Five achieved in 2021-2022 that it didn't achieve, that they didn't achieve in 2013, 2014. You really see this constitutional makeover as a continuation of the Power Five's autonomy movement in 2013, 2014. And the Power Five did what smart organizations do or smart alliances do. They took a catastrophe and turned it into opportunity. And the other thing that's interesting is the vocabulary is virtually identical. And the way that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries in big-time college sports talked about all these issues swirling around the autonomy legislation in 2013-2014, you you hear the same phrases, identical phrases, identical words, identical descriptions. You have the same key decision makers, and I'm going to go through some of those people in just a minute here, but you had some of the very same people who were movers and shakers for the autonomy classification who are sitting in positions of uh, leadership and decision-making chairs in 2022. The other thing that you had in 2013, 2014 that you had in this constitutional makeover were really dishonest presentations of the true interests that were behind both of these movements. So in 2014, you had Mark Emmert being the lightning rod. And I talked about that in the last episode a little bit. But in 2014, Emmert went before the Senate Commerce Committee to carry Power 5 football's bags and make the case for autonomy legislation. But he didn't talk about it on those terms. He wasn't honest about why he was there. And you didn't have a Power 5 president. You didn't have a Power 5 athletics director. You didn't have a Power 5 conference commissioner at that hearing. And I went through that hearing in some detail in episode 23, so you can check that out as well. And in 2021, 2022, you didn't have Greg Sankey taking to the microphones in August of 2021. You had Robert Gates. (laughs) They pulled him off the board of uh, governors. And as I mentioned in my episodes when I talked about how Gates framed the work of the committee 
in those episodes in August. But it was really interesting because I believe this was the first time that a member of the Board of Governors who was not the chair of that body assumed a public position and an advocacy position on behalf of the NCAA. So Gates was out there doing in 2021 to 2022 what Mark Emmert was doing in, in Congress in 2014. And you didn't have the true power players stepping up to identify themselves, declare their interests, and speak honestly about what was going on behind the scenes. And then in 2021-2022, you had Jack DeJoya, the chair of the Board of Governors, the NCAA Board of Governors, and he was out there making comments. And you had the chair of the Division I Board of Directors making comments. And you had all of these people running interference for what was actually happening behind the scenes. And that tactic was virtually identical to what happened in 2014. And it's a tactic that the NCAA has been using for decades. They used that same tactic in 1997 when they sent NCAA President Cedric Dempsey to those hearings. And he was the human shield for the true interests behind the scenes that were really running college sports. And those were the Power Five football interests. Actually, that was a little more honest because at least Delaney showed up to talk about it. But you had the NCAA basically being the front person for the Power Five football interests. And that's really, I think, what led to Jeff Sessions' question. It was really more of a comment than a question. But hey, you're just the NCAA guy. You're here to take all the flack, but you you are reporting. According to the university presidents, and you're the messenger. And then the same thing happened in 2003 when NCAA President Miles Brand is sitting right next to uh, Nebraska Chancellor Harvey Perlman taking uh, taking the heat for big-time powerful football, making it appear as if there is consensus, institutional consensus throughout the NCAA that whatever the Power Five football interests are putting out there for public consumption is A-OK with the membership. Everybody's on board. Everybody agrees. Nobody disagrees. And then, of course, lurking beneath that tactical misdirection are the NCAA's fundamentally corrupt values, like amateurism, the student-athlete, and the collegiate model, and even with this constitutional makeover in 2021-2022, when you look at the Constitution, the, the phrase student-athlete is everywhere. They have restated their compensation limit, their amateurism-based compensation limit. And the word amateur doesn't appear. That's because of the Austin decision. Amateurism is just a bad word. So they changed that vocabulary. Now it's the student-athlete collegiate model or some happy malarkey like that. But you, you still are back to defending the same principles. Athletes can't be employees, no pay for play. We get to decide whether or how much athletes get anything above the value of a full athletics scholarship. And we are going to have the regulatory authority to micromanage their lives. That hasn't changed. And it's going to be real interesting to see through the work of this transformation committee, what the Power Five do with the rule book. What are they going to keep in? What are they going to take out? And if on the backside of all this work of the Transformation Committee and this reimagination of the regulatory model, if we wind up with essentially the same sets of rules protecting the same interests. And they go to two things, really, under the existing regulatory model. It is preserving the overarching cap on compensation at the value of an athletic scholarship and trying to regulate the talent acquisition market, the recruiting market. 
And if the rule book doesn't change that much in those two areas, then I think you can look back and, and start asking some questions about what the hell was really going on here. And the honest answer is this was just the, a completion of the Power 5 power grab that they didn't quite pull off in 2013, 2014. So let me talk just a little bit about the environment that existed in 2013, 2014, and compare that to the environment that exists today. And it's so easy to get caught up into the chicken little way of thinking and the catastrophe way of thinking when all these things kind of come together to create a critical mass of mess that has people thinking, oh my God, this is going to be the death of college sports as we know it. And the in-system stakeholder benefit beneficiaries have been very effective at, at playing on those fears. But in 2013, 2014, you had four or five really important things. You had the O'Bannon case. I talked about that in my Pay for Play episodes, episodes 21 and 22. O'Bannon was filed in 2009, and it was the name, image, and likeness case. It was really starting to come to a head in the pretrial phase in late 2013. You had the, the Power Five conferences who were defendants in that suit getting really anxious because it became apparent to them, and I think to most people who were paying attention to that litigation, that Judge Wilkin, Claudia Wilkin, who presided over that case, and it was a bench trial, so it was tried before a judge, not a jury. But it became apparent to the the key stakeholders that Wilkin wasn't all on board with the NCAA's construction of reality. And I would say one of the, the best things to come out of O'Bannon was that the NCAA was held to the same standards under antitrust laws as any other market actor would be. They're not special. They didn't get a free pass because of amateurism. And prior to O'Bannon, the NCAA had been uniformly successful in marching into federal court or defending a case in federal court that challenged any of their regulatory authority. And the NCAA would just hold up Board of Regents and read the dicta on amateurism and the venerable tradition and ample latitude and all that stuff that Austin, the Austin Supreme Court unanimously rejected. But they were very successful in using that in, in federal litigation, and they won those cases because of those arguments. So basically, they had never really been held to account under antitrust laws for for their compensation limits. And the way that Judge Wilkin was talking about the case leading up to the trial, she wasn't giving that deference to the NCAA. And that scared the hell out of the NCAA and the Power Five. I think one motivating factor in this autonomy campaign was to get a little bit ahead of the game to show to the court that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, the voluntary regulators, could make change that was beneficial to the athletes. And then, of course, you had all these concerns about the Northwestern football players' attempts to unionize. That unionization action was filed in January of 2014. But they had to do some kind of foundational work to get that case ready. And in the fall of 2013, there, there was a whisper campaign about something going on at Northwestern and the fact that they were going to try to form a union and establish that they are employees, not students, as the NCAA claims. So you had that, and that was a potent threat. And then uh, the other thing that was important in that time frame is that just a year before, in 2012, the CFP was formed. And so you had the big-time football interests sort of working out the big-time college football marketplace through a postseason playoff. And again, this relates only to postseason football. But that was an important piece of the puzzle for big-time football. And I don't think the big-time powerful football interests wanted some bombshell forced change in the market 
as was possible through a ruling by Judge Wilkin that just blew the doors on amateurism. So they were really, I think, wanting to try to preserve their status quo that they had been negotiating for decades under pressure from the uh, the, the have-nots in big-time college football. And as I mentioned in the last episode, the have-nots were brought into the CFP to try to alleviate some of the antitrust concerns. So that was an important piece as well. And then the other thing that was going on is that the NCAA national office was literally under siege. And Mark Emmert and Donald Remy were under fire. And a lot of people were saying that the NCAA national office was just going to collapse under the weight of its uh, arrogance and incompetence. But there were two big issues there. And the first was kind of the backwash of the Penn State scandal, the Jerry Sandusky scandal. And what the NCAA did, and not the NCAA, what Mark Emmert and Donald Remy did unilaterally was to completely go outside of the NCAA infractions and enforcement process to try to bring the hammer down on Penn State in a way that was really outside of its authority. So Remy and Emmert come in and they put together this draconian consent order. And I think they believed that because Penn State was so embarrassed and in such a position of weakness that they would agree to whatever Emmert and Remy put together. So they put together this consent order. They take it to to Penn State. They don't run it through infractions and enforcement. And there were people in infractions and enforcement at the time who were saying, this is a problem. This is a huge mistake. We don't have the authority to do this because none of our NCAA rules, nothing in our rule book goes to the conduct that occurred at Penn State University. The same issue you had with Baylor and the sexual assault there and the violence against women there. And in a, a much different context, the same issue you had with uh, the UNC academic fraud. The NCAA rulebook didn't cover any of those circumstances, and they simply didn't have jurisdiction to take that action. On the backside of that power play by Emmert and Remy, some Penn State interests sued the NCAA. And what they were getting in discovery in that litigation was just shocking in terms of the NCAA's behind-the-scenes arrogance and Mark Emmert and Don Remy's arrogance. It was just a whole horrible look for the NCAA, and it really shined a light on this institutional, this national office narcissism that that ran through these two guys, and they were just blind to the consequences. And I just want to note that in my uh, series on the NC State case, the infractions and enforcement case, I talked a little bit about this Penn State case and how important it was in exposing the NCAA's true motives in its enforcement and infractions work, and that is is to paint a picture for public consumption that the NCAA is on the job to protect the sacred principle of amateurism. And in that discovery, in the lawsuit that was filed after the Sandusky scandal sort of died down a little bit, the Penn State interest got internal documents from the NCAA where NCAA insiders at the national office expressed serious concerns about the fact that Emmert's focus was always on the NCAA's public image, but more importantly, 
his public image and that Emmert was using his authorities as the NCAA president to go out into public and uh, pound his chest and try to present himself as the savior of college sports. And Donald Remy was in lockstep with Mark Emmert. And then in early 2013 and leading into this autonomy campaign, the NCAA took it on the chin again. And as always, it was a self-inflicted wound. The NCAA had been investigating the University of Miami. It's Miami, Florida, not Ohio. And the allegations were serious. They involved pay for play in the revenue sports. And some booster for Miami was alleged to have been outright paying players to either attend Miami or to stay happy at Miami. The uh, NCAA opened an investigation and was on the precipice of issuing notice of allegations when a bombshell story dropped. This booster was having some financial difficulties and he filed for bankruptcy. He also was involved in a criminal case involving some kind of a Ponzi scheme. And uh, he is on the outs with the University of Miami and apparently there was some ill will there. But this guy has a bankruptcy attorney and a criminal defense attorney handling his interests. And under the cover of darkness through secret back-channel communications, the NCAA enforcement staff, the National Office Enforcement Staff, connects with this guy's lawyers and they use the bankruptcy proceeding as a conduit to essentially conduct a surreptitious NCAA investigation. And apparently this Booster and his bankruptcy attorney agree to it. And in 2011, one of the witnesses in the bankruptcy case, it was a former equipment manager uh, at uh, Miami who apparently was being used by this booster as a conduit for funneling money. This guy shows up for his deposition in a bankruptcy proceeding, in a bankruptcy deposition, and sitting in the room is an NCAA enforcement staff investigator who's been uh, handling the Miami case. And so this witness has a whiskey tango foxtrot moment, demands that the NCAA investigator leave the room, which he did. And then during the deposition, the, the witness says that a substantial portion of the deposition was devoted to questions that went to the NCAA infractions and enforcement case, not the bankruptcy issues. And then this equipment manager witness goes public and becomes essentially a whistleblower to the NCAA's fraudulent use of the bankruptcy proceeding to conduct its infractions and enforcement work. And then, of course, all hell breaks loose, both at the NCAA National Office and in the media. And the NCAA immediately suspends its infractions and enforcement case against Miami so that it can have a an external investigator come in to investigate the NCAA infractions and enforcement process because of its unethical conduct. And as if that's not enough irony, the charges that they were uh, levying against the uh, university officials involved and the coaches involved were for breaches of a bylaw that goes to unethical conduct. Actually, it's titled ethical conduct. And these coaches were violating the principles of ethical conduct in their dealings with these athletes and with this booster. 
And then Mark Emmert does what he does best. He starts pointing fingers, claims implausible deniability, fires a couple of people, and then goes in front of microphones and says, hey, don't blame me. So they fired the investigator who showed up at the deposition. They fired the number two person in the infractions and enforcement department at the NCAA national office. And then Emmert's initial public response to the scandal was to say, this is obviously a shocking affair. We have to get the answer to how did this individual who was working with the booster end up engaging in these activities on our behalf? It's stunning that this has transpired. In that same press conference where Emmert's going out to try to explain what has happened here, he repeatedly said in response to questions from the media that, quote, I wasn't personally aware, end quote, or, quote, you're probably asking the wrong guy, end quote. That is just classic Mark Emmert and classic NCAA. And in an institution of integrity, and remember, this is a values-based institution, which is hanging its nonprofit hat on the values of higher education and amateur athletics. In that setting, you have the leader of that organization basically making a mockery of the institution's values and his leadership. He should have been fired on the spot, not just because this happened under his watch, whether he knew or didn't know, but because his comments afterward basically threw anybody associated with that scandal under the bus, and it was not his problem. Don't blame me. Don't look to me. Don't even ask me questions. Who the hell do you think you are? I'm just the president of this organization. I had no idea what was going on, and you're asking the wrong guy. That's just stunning. Stunning deflection of responsibility and lack of accountability. But Mark Emmert rolled right along there. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute when I talk about the, the backside of these events of 2014. So you had these two things consuming the media along with these other external regulatory threats. And then you had the hearing in the, in the Senate Commerce Committee in July of 2014. And Emmert just got beaten up there by Jay Rockefeller, who was the chair of that committee. He's a Democrat from West Virginia. But Emmert was there to carry the bags for the Power Five, to give them everything they want. And behind the scenes, the Power Five were threatening to leave the NCAA altogether, as they have done before to try to uh, complete their power grab through this autonomy legislation. But I just want to go through who, who some of the players were in, in this autonomy campaign. So it was led by the SEC and the Big Ten. Surprise, surprise. And you had Michael Slive, who was the commissioner of the Southeastern Conference. He, he was involved there. But behind the scenes was uh, someone else. Guess who? Greg Sankey, who is now chair of the Division I Board of Directors Transformation Committee. He is now the commissioner of the SEC. But in 2013-2014, he was the associate SEC commissioner. So he worked under Slive. And Sankey has been credited with being kind of the brains behind the structure of the autonomy campaign. And then you had, of course, Jim Delaney, commissioner of the Big Ten, who I talked about in the last episode and used a, an important quote there where he basically said powerful football interests could do whatever the hell they wanted to do and there's nothing that the rest of the NCAA could do about it. Delaney was, in any discussion about the structure of college sports at that time, Delaney was sitting in the big chair because he was the most powerful conference commissioner at that time. And then you had Harvey Perlman, who was the chancellor of the University of Nebraska, and he was representing Big Ten interests. He was a co-author of the the blueprint for autonomy legislation and the autonomy classification. And I talked about him in the last episode. He's one of these guys, these powerful people behind the scenes. It just keeps 
coming up again and again. And in, in 2021, you have some of the same people. You have Sankey's involved. I'm confident that Delaney was involved as a consultant. He does consultancy work, even though he's no longer the Big Ten commissioner. They hired Kevin Warren. I think it was in 2019 or maybe early 2020. I can't remember. I don't know if Perlman was involved in this latest power play through the Constitution Committee. I wouldn't be surprised if he were. And then, as I mentioned earlier, of course, you had the NCAA president, Mark Emmert, both in 2013, 2014, and then in 2021, 2022, saying whatever he had to say, that he was just a wind-up doll, the Power 5 football wind-up doll, and he was going to say whatever he had to say to keep his March Madness gravy train and his $4 million salary and his lifestyle of the rich and famous. And of course, you had NCAA executives behind the scenes. In 2013, 2014, it was Donald Remy. He left in April of 2021, but you had all the liaisons to this Constitution Committee work where NCAA executives at the highest level, including people like Scott Baerby and Stan Wilcox. So you had the, the same cast of characters, essentially. And then this is an important difference. In 2013, 2014, you had NCAA lawyers and Power Five lawyers looking at some of these things. I'm sure they were weighing in on the antitrust implications of the autonomy classification. But but you really didn't have lobbyists involved, and the and the spin doctors, these high-powered public relations people, were not in full gear yet. And it was in 2014, just before that Senate hearing, when Emmert made the Power Five football's case for autonomy, and then took the flack from people like Jay Rockefeller. It was right before that hearing that the NCAA hired Brownstein Hyatt, this high-powered D.C. lobbying firm. That was really the, the beginning of them bringing all of their interests inside the Beltway and uh, trying to play the high-stakes game of big-time political influence peddling. You, you had uh, really some striking similarities in the circumstances then and now. And so now what I want to do is go through this document that really lays out the template for this autonomy campaign in 2013-2014. And it is dated November 25th, 2013. I got this document from the nooks and crannies of the electronic vault in the O'Bannon case. And this was a document that the athletes got through discovery. They requested documents and the NCAA had to provide some documents. And this was one of them. It's marked confidential. I'm not sure if this is a part of the original document or whether the NCAA and Power Five lawyers marked it confidential for purposes of the litigation. But the title of this document is Presentation to NCAA Division I Board of Directors Subcommittee on Restructuring the NCAA. And it is authored by the University of Florida President Bernie Matchin and Florida's in the SEC, and also by Chancellor Harvey Perlman, University of Nebraska-Lincoln, Big Ten. And let's see, I think Nebraska came into the Big Ten in 2011, so they were a fairly new member. But you have Perlman, the same guy who was sitting next to Brand at those hearings in 2003, and the same guy who was really involved in the Uniform Law Commission's work on name, image, and likeness. Here he is again. Perlman is just everywhere. So this is a football show. Again, this is all about Power 5 football. So I'm just going to go through this document and it's only, I don't know, maybe five pages long. I'm going to hit the high points and then bring it back home to compare what comes out of this document with what 
came out of the Constitution Committee's work and, and the identification of issues by this Division I Board of Directors Transformation Committee. And, and one note for clarification. Back then, the stakeholders referred to the Power Five by a different name, and it's really confusing because they actually called themselves the Group of Five, and now we call the lower-tiered conferences the Group of Five. So what I'm going to do is use today's language that everybody, I think, understands and agrees on, and that is that the Power Five or the ACC, Big Ten, Big 12, Pac-12, and SEC, and then you have the Group of Five below that, the American Athletics Conference, you have the MAC, you have a Conference USA, you have the Sun Belt, you have the what is it, the Mountain West? I, I, I don't know if I got those right, but th those are the two groups of conferences. And so I'm just going to refer to them by their current name. So they start the document by saying, we offer the following testimony on behalf of the presidents, chancellors, athletic directors of the Power Five conferences, ACC, Big Ten, Big 12, Pac-12, and SEC. This testimony sets out commonly held views of why we seek structural change. We also seek to clarify how the envisioned structure might be implemented. The five conferences, the Power Five conferences, make this proposal with the intention of rebuilding a strong national organization in support of intercollegiate athletics. So right off the bat, they're trying to make this seem like uh, this isn't a huge deal. We're just we're making some structural changes here. But these are uh, commonly held views. So we're getting the consensus argument. Everybody agrees. Nobody disagrees. And then the statement that you know, we make this proposal with the intention of rebuilding a strong national organization in support of intercollegiate athletics. That's important because what they're signaling is that if you play ball with us and go along with what we need, we won't leave the NCAA. We will rebuild a strong national organization and we will allow you to preserve whatever status quo you need so long as we get what we need. And then they go into a section where they explain why they want structural change. And the heading is titled just that, Why Do We Seek Structural Change? They talk about how important intercollegiate athletics is to, to college sports, and particularly football and basketball. And it's an important part of the fabric of American life to lead into their self-interest, basically. They say, after that Norman Rockwell intro, they say, it is also clear that currently intercollegiate athletics is a subject of considerable criticism. They say, our institutions are accused of exploiting student-athletes for our own financial gain. Some believe that athletics undermines the values of higher education or that our institutions have lost control of the enterprise. And that really was kind of the sentiment that was swirling around college sports at that time, and it was a powerful sentiment. And then Perlman and Matchin go on to say, the mechanism we use to enforce the rules of engagement among our member institutions or to protect student athletes is often seen as inconsistent, arbitrary, and subject to manipulation. They're invoking the infractions and enforcement process. And remember, you've got that Penn State case and that Miami case hanging over this whole discussion. And then they say this, we see radical proposals for reform that in our view are inconsistent with the nature of intercollegiate athletics within a context of higher education. We are also subjected to litigation and potential legislation that may have dramatic and uncertain consequences for our programs. That is a direct appeal to the sky is falling argument. And I think they want to identify and 
and deal with these external regulatory threats. So obviously they're talking about the O'Bannon case when they talk about legislation. The, the radical proposals, I think, are uh, a reference to the Northwestern unionization attempt, and that would be radical for from the Power Five's perspective that athletes could actually be deemed the employees that they truly are. And then there was some suggestion that Congress was unhappy and there were some rumblings that Congress could get involved. Again, the usual suspects there. And then they go on to say, and this is where we really get to how they perceive their interests relative to the rest of college sports. They say these criticisms and any reforms they may provoke will have a differential impact on the institutions of our five conferences. We operate the most visible and most competitive programs. Because of this, we generate the most revenue, revenue that not only benefits our own institutions, but also supports the enterprise of intercollegiate athletics across the landscape of higher education. We have the most to lose if ill-advised reforms are imposed. So what are they saying there? They're saying we're special, we're different. And I think in a very subtle but in mistakeable way, we are the business of big-time college sports. And then Matchin and Perlman say this, and, and this really, I think, kind of gets to the heart of the matter. They say, yet at the same time, we do not have the ability within the current NCAA structure to control our own destiny, to adopt reforms that respond to these concerns without creating unintended consequences, and to build a regulatory structure that respects the demands on student athletes in the 21st century. They want to control their own destiny. And that phrase, controlling your own destiny, came up in connection with this Constitution Committee's work and the people that the NCAA and the Power Five for putting out there as the public faces of that campaign. Linda Levingstone said that in September in the, her testimony in the House. And Bob Gates said that. And some of the members of the Constitution Committee said that. We want to control our own destiny. But in this context, it's just the Power Five. This is just about the Power Five in 2013, 2014. And I think the same is true in 2021, 2022. And they take that theme and segue it into the next uh, section titled, What Do We Want? And they say, at, at its most basic level, we want to be able to control our own destiny so that we may create a modern system of intercollegiate athletics, which in turn will preserve the enterprise for all institutions and provide appropriate support for our student athletes. Yet we also want to participate as colleagues within an NCAA that embraces a full range of institutions and works to promote and improve intercollegiate athletics within the context of higher education. And then they go on to identify a list of things that I'm going to go through here in just a minute that they want to achieve their goals. But the way they phrased this, what, what do we want, is really interesting because it captures this fundamental tension between this big tent NCAA with 1,200 schools and three divisions and everybody playing in the same amateurism sandbox uh, harmoniously and happily, and the Power Fives repeated attempts to isolate and segregate their interest under the NCAA umbrella. And those two themes are irreconcilable. And that kind of doublethink came through in the work of the Constitution Committee in the way that they tried to justify sending these national authorities downstream and saying, oh, well, the divisions need to do this. This should be a divisional responsibility. And, but then also, saying, well, we need to do it under the Big 
intent, th those two concepts simply can't exist uh, side by side. So then they go on to, to talk about how they want to accomplish these structural changes. And here you really see how tightly tethered the talking points were in 2013, 2014 with what came out of this Constitution Committee in 2021, 2022. So the, number one, right off the bat, the first thing they want to make absolutely clear is that the current rules regarding access to NCAA basketball championships and the distribution of NCAA revenue would be maintained. We seek control of our own destiny with the least disruption to the expectations of other institutions. Again, we want to control or they are hammering that phrase. And so did the stakeholders in this constitutional makeover. But what's the first item of business here? That is to reassure the NCAA bureaucracy, that we are not going to tamper with your gravy train. And this is a tacit admission, I think, that the Power 5 football interests don't give a damn about the March Madness money. And in 2013, 2014, as is the case today, the Power 5 football interests are very happy to let that March Madness money pay for all of the association-wide expenses that big-time football doesn't pay a penny for. And the other part of this that's so important is they talk about the distribution of NCAA revenue from the March Madness money. That's going to be maintained. That is saying to divisions two and three and lower level division one, we are not going to take away your welfare checks. So here's Harvey Perlman saying that we want to preserve the welfare state for divisions two and divisions three, when in 2003, he was basically saying, no way in hell is that going to happen for, for power five football. We, we keep our money and this is America and keep your hands off of it. Oh, but this March Madness money, yeah, downstream beneficiaries of the welfare payments, we're going we're gonna to protect that for you. Don't worry. We got you covered. <laughs> the other thing I didn't point out when I was talking about Perlman's testimony in 2003 is that actually the Power Five football interests are welfare recipients. You know, he's, he's making this pro-American case and why should we have to pay for people who can't support themselves? They're just taken from us and this is America and we don't have to do that in America and all this stuff. But the Power Five football interests are the beneficiaries of March Madness welfare because they don't have to pay or chip in for any of the expenses that uh, are required to run the NCAA association. Why? So in 2021-2022, Bob Gates led his discussion in framing the issues and the work of this Constitution Committee. He said in that Social Series podcast, the first thing we do is do no harm. Our first principle is do no harm. And by that, he meant we need to preserve the March Madness money, we need to keep the NCAA national office in business, and we need to keep the welfare system to lower, lower level Division One, Divisions Two, and Divisions Three in place for the downstream beneficiaries of March Madness money. And he said that explicitly, and then he tied it in to the necessity of getting enough votes to amend the Constitution because you, you need two-thirds of the total membership to amend the Constitution. And with uh, Division Two and Division Three payoffs with buying them off with March Madness money, you have your two-thirds majority right there. So that hasn't changed. Do no harm. Mm. Number two, the Power Five conferences should have legislation autonomy over areas of regulation that are most sensitive to the differentiation of institutions and 
resources. That's an interesting phrase, differentiation of institutions and resources. I think that's a polite way of saying we are big and powerful, but make a bunch of money. And the little guys are weak and powerless and don't contribute anything to the bottom line, which is consistent with the way that the Power 5 football interests see the college sports world and the college sports marketplace and the regulatory model. And then they go through a, a list of specific things, and they talk about the full cost of attendance scholarship. They talk about some benefits that would otherwise be prohibited by NCAA regulations, but would be permissible under autonomy legislation that, that would apply only to the Power Five. And they talk about a lifetime scholarship to obtain an undergraduate education and insurance or other financial support to address the health and safety of student-athletes, support in recruiting to permit families of student-athletes to accompany and advise student-athletes on official visits, relaxation of rules restricting food and other support. So all of that is very modest stuff. And the cost of attendance scholarship actually, as I've discussed in prior episodes, was the product of the O'Bannon litigation. And again, this is before the O'Bannon ruling, but the the court there basically required the NCAA not to set a cap on that scholarship that was below the full cost of attending school. And schools didn't have to offer it, but the, the NCAA couldn't cap it at a, a level below the full cost of attendance. So that was something the federal courts were headed towards anyway. And then these other benefits are things that are really no-brainers, honestly. The other thing about this list, almost all these things have been on the table for decades. And this cost of attendance scholarship had its roots really in the original 1956 scholarship that was in place from 1956 to 1973 that included what was called laundry money. Laundry money was, was a fixed monthly amount. It wasn't set according to adjustable federal financial aid guidelines, but that was done away with in 1973. So this is nothing new. And, and the same is true with all these other things. So the, the next thing on the list, Authorizing a more comprehensive support for academically at-risk student-athletes and support, extra support, that's has been on the list for a long, long time because of the dismal graduation rates of revenue-producing athletes, particularly African-American revenue-producing athletes. And then uh, redefining rules governing agents and advisors to assure student-athletes have access to good advice relating to their future careers. That's a no-brainer as well. But again, that discussion goes back years and years, all of these things. So these things that the Power Five in 2013, 2014 were offering up as these transformative benefits have been on the table for a long time. They're very modest. And oh, by the way, guess what? These are benefits that the Power Five can afford, but that the group of five nipping at the Power Five's heels probably can't. And remember, under this legislation, the Power Five and only the Power Five decide what those benefits are. So the uh, group of five are really put at a competitive disadvantage here. This is a built-in competitive advantage in the talent acquisition market that basically creates an insurmountable advantage for the power five. And I think that was cynically, I think that was one of the the power grabs here, a pathway to basically marginalizing the group of five in the talent acquisition market. So then the next thing that's really important is that Perlman and... uh, Matchin say, there is considerable interest in developing a process that is simplified and is managed by athletics directors, faculty athletics representatives, and others who best understand the realities of competition at the highest 
level, presidential control would remain a feature of such a process. And then they say uh, the legislation adopted by the Power Five within its exclusive authority would not be subject to override or modification by any process that involved more than the Power Five. So what they're saying here is this is really the association within an association because in their initial formulation, they were saying that there was no regulatory legislative pathway for any other interest in the NCAA system to come in and tell the Power Five that they can't do what they want to do. But the other thing that's so important here, and this is something that has played out in this Constitution Committee, this is essentially saying this presidential leadership and control model has been a failure, and we need to put people in charge of big-time college sports who understand the business, the athletics directors, the FARs, and others. And by others, they mean conference commissioners. They don't want to come out and, and say that and acknowledge the power of the conference commissioners. So this way of thinking was really the beginning of the end of the era of presidential leadership and control and and responsibility for intercollegiate athletics. And they just put the finishing touches on that and just, just killed it all together uh, in 2021 through this Constitution Committee. And the restructure of the Board of Governors that went from a 21-member board with 16 university presidents and chancellors down to a nine-person body that would have at most three university presidents and chancellors and likely only one division one university president or chancellor. So in, in 2013-2014, the Power Five put the the presidents on life support and then in 21-22 they just pulled the plug. <laughs> you know, it's the death of the presidential leadership and control model. And then they go on to try to bring in the interests of the group of five, and they're talking about how this regulatory authority would work. It's really not that clear. That portion of it was kind of uh, cloudy, and I think purposefully, because they weren't sure what authorities they wanted to give any other stakeholders outside of the Power Five through this autonomy legislation. So they sort of throw the group of five a bone by saying that any legislation that the Power Five adopts can then be adopted by other conferences or groups of, of conferences. And then the, the, the last thing that this testimony talks about is really important because it's the infractions and enforcement process. And so Perlman and Matchin say, we also believe our institutions have a more significant stake in the enforcement process. Unfortunately, but understandably, our member institutions are often the target for enforcement and are the most visible when infractions occur and have the most to lose if violations are found. We have a strong stake in fashioning an enforcement mechanism that is and is perceived to be fair and even-handed. There are other models for enforcing regulatory regimes that should be examined. We intend to impanel expertise from outside the NCAA to help us fashion a modern enforcement process, and we would want the authority to adopt it for enforcement of rules against our institutions. And then they say, if this process were found to, to be appropriate by other institutions, it could be adopted across the NCAA. That almost 
perfectly describes what the Constitution Committee did in 2021. And I'll note th this discussion about taking over the infractions and enforcement process by the Power Five in 2013, 2014 did not happen. They did not get the enforcement piece that they really wanted. That didn't happen until 2021, 2022. And I think that that may be the most important component of the constitutional makeover. This was the, the big missing piece from the autonomy campaign in 2013. 2014. They get it now and they can do whatever the hell they want to. They can put together any process that they want to. And this language that they used to justify a takeover of infractions and enforcement in 2013, 2014, it's identical to the language that they used in late 2021 and early 2022. To close this thing out, I just want to real quickly just go down that list. The, the list from this 2013 demand letter. This is essentially a demand letter. They try to couch it in fluffy, polite terms, but they're saying this is what we want and we need to get it. And they got almost everything that they, they did want, except for control of the infractions and enforcement process. So in 2013, let's see, they, what, were they, what are they saying? They're saying that we want to take power from the national organization and have it reside in a structure under the NCAA umbrella that we have absolute control over. They did that in 2014, and they did the same thing in 2021 through this divisional argument that, well, let's just have Division One do everything that the NCAA National Association used to do, including enforcing the amateurs and base compensation limits and having an independent infractions and enforcement process. So the same justification is there, and that is this shift of power from the NCAA to the Power Five. Number two are the external regulatory threats. In 2013, the justification for this campaign was that the Power Five wanted to control their own destiny. That was the buzz phrase. In 2021, 2022, the, the same issue is on the table, but this time it's the NCAA trying to take control of its own destiny and Division I trying to take control of its own destiny. And the Power Five's power grab and controlling its own destiny is very cleverly disguised by conflating the interests of the Power Five with the divisions and then the NCAA more broadly. And then you had this language in 2014 that the Power Five wanted to modernize the system. This is about modernization. We want to bring this into the 21st century. The identical rhetoric, the identical language that the NCAA used starting in 2019 in connection with its uh, dishonest name, image, and likeness campaign through voluntary rules making, which it never did, and then through its uh, marched through the Senate, which fortunately was unsuccessful, but their statements were, it's time to modernize. The time is now. We have to modernize our rules. And then, of course, you have the invocation of the do no harm principle in 2014. It was NCAA basketball championships and distributions of revenue will be continued. And that was a way to just to placate the interests that they needed to placate to get the power grab authorized by the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. And then, of course, Bob Gates used that very same strategy, the do-no-harm strategy to justify the same ends, preserve the March Madness money, the welfare checks, and the NCAA championships, and get the votes that you need to complete the power grab. And then, of course, as I discussed a few minutes ago, you have the Power Five saying to the presidents, just butt out. <laughs> we can take care of this ourselves. And remember, this message in, in 2014 is coming from two university presidents slash chancellors. 
they're saying this needs to be in the hands of the professionals. And that dovetails a little bit with the abysmal response rate to the Constitution Committee's survey. They sent out this survey to stakeholders, the institutional stakeholders, about what they wanted in this new constitution and what were the non-negotiable items. They they put the response rates by division and by stakeholder group. And the Division One university presidents basically decided they were just going to take the day off on the, on this survey. Only 37% of Division One university presidents bothered to respond to the survey. And it was a 20-minute survey. And then, of course, we have the infractions and enforcement component uh, of this. And that was that's so important because the, the Power Five couldn't get that in 2014. They got it in 2021, 22. And then, of course, you have this, this group of five issue. H- how does the Power Five relate to the group of five? And under the autonomy legislation in 2014, they basically were the only group that could write the rules and they could really do whatever they wanted to, to create and maintain an insurmountable competitive advantage in the talent acquisition market relative to the group of five. And I think today, the place of the group of five is really a question mark. And I think that, as I discussed in the last couple of episodes, some of these antitrust issues and these battles between the haves and the have-nots in big-time college football are alive and well and probably playing out behind the scenes in these discussions about the future of Division One and conference realignment and the CFP expansion. So I, I have a kind of a question mark next to that, and that's going to be one of the things we'll talk about going forward. And speaking of going forward, I want to talk a little bit about how this fits into to what I'm going to be talking about next. One of the things, one of the lessons that comes out of the aftermath of this period, 2013 to 2014, that was so chaotic and the NCAA was in a position of weakness and Emmert's leadership was under assault and a lot of people thought it was time for him to go. I think a lot of people felt who were paying attention felt the same way about Donald Remy. And the infractions and enforcement process was just getting beaten up, as it should, as it should. But on the backside of that, the NCAA survives. Mark Emmert survives. Donald Remy survives. The National Office Administrative State survives virtually unscathed. And it is right back to business as usual. You have these issues flare up. You didn't have athletes winning the Northwestern case. They had a win at the regional level. And then the National Labor Relations Board basically uh, said, well, we don't have jurisdiction. They punted on the issue. So it was dead after that ruling in 2014. And then O'Bannon, we had the opinion come out in O'Bannon. And then it rolls through the Ninth Circuit in 2015. And O'Bannon turned out to be a really mixed bag for the athletes and the NCAA. So yes, the NCAA was held to antitrust scrutiny and the full rule of reason analysis, and they had to defend their use of amateurism in that analysis. But beyond that, the athletes didn't get much of a remedy at all. They got the full cost of attendance scholarship. They didn't get these trust funds. The Ninth Circuit took them off the books. But importantly, in the way that the Ninth Circuit analyzed that case, they basically drew this distinction between benefits that are tethered to education and those that are not. And those that are tethered to education are okay. And those that aren't are not okay. So in that sense, the NCAA and the Power Five dodged the biggest bullet that could have come out of that O'Bannon litigation. And that was that Judge Wilkin and perhaps the Ninth Circuit would have 
just blown the doors on amateurism and there would be a free market for the value of the athlete's services. That didn't happen. This is not only a narrow ruling, but the way that that the Ninth Circuit framed the issues, it granted the NCAA essentially a form of qualified antitrust immunity for any benefits that were unrelated to education. And that ruling is still in effect because the Supreme Court in Austin adopted it without analysis. So on the backside of this tumultuous year of 2014, the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries came out okay. The other thing that's important about that period is that even on the issues where the NCAA just got beaten up, like this Penn State case and then the Miami case, let's take the Miami case. One of the issues the NCAA has said for a long, long time that they wanted to have in order to do the righteous work in enforcement and infractions to protect the sacred principle of amateurism was to have subpoena power. They wanted to have the ability to to haul all these bad actors before a tribunal to force them to to provide evidence and testimony and, and documents. The NCAA, think about that. Think about that ask. It is a private nonprofit entity that is supposed to be regulating an extracurricular activity. And they want subpoena power so that they can just rid the college sports world of all these bad actors and all these boogeymen. And there's simply no way legally that the NCAA could acquire that authority. So what do they do? They do it surreptitiously and dishonestly. I don't know whether it was illegal, but it was certainly unethical to hire attorneys in cases that have absolutely nothing to do with the NCAA or any NCAA infractions and enforcement process, and then channel the authority granted in those proceedings to pursue NCAA interests. So you would think that would be a lesson learned by the NCAA. But no, as soon as the heat died down and there was enough distance between that Miami case and the NCAA's next power play, they're right there in Congress in connection with their campaign in the Senate in in 2020, getting Republican-friendly senators and then a member in the House to put together bills that would grant the NCAA subpoena power. I've talked about that a little bit, but I'm going to talk about it in more detail when I break down this Moran bill. The Moran bill does that. Both of these bills, there was one by Steve Shabbat, a Republican from Ohio in the House, and then Jerry Moran, a Republican from Kansas in the Senate. And both of those bills, would have a federal corporation act as the governmental entity to enforce the name, image, and likeness marketplace. But really what it would be is a a federal police state, a a name, image, and likeness police state. And it goes far beyond nil, those bills do. And under these bills, the uh, decision makers in this federal corporation are Power 5 and NCAA insiders, and they can use that subpoena power to just destroy people. And they would. They would do exactly what the NCAA tried to do behind the scenes unethically to the University of Miami. They would just be in open power and they would just go hog wild with that. And that component of these two bills has not gotten a single word of media coverage. It is an extraordinary ask and an extraordinary power. And you have not heard one ESPN writer, one CBS writer, one Sports Illustrated writer, anybody out in the in the sports commentary breathe a word of that. And it's important to understand that the Power Five lobbyists have identified that Moran bill as a bill that they are pushing. They're lobbying for that bill. 
So I think they would like to have subpoena power. So the point of that is that you, you think that these people learn from their mistakes. No, because they don't see it as a mistake. They just got caught. The Power Five is not going to be viewing this any differently than the NCAA did. And they want the same powers that the NCAA was seeking. And we're going to have to pay real close attention to what comes out of this uh, transformation committee on the infractions and enforcement front. So I think what I might do for the next episode is to use these last three episodes uh, particularly the, the turmoil that existed in, in 2014. And then look at what's happening in 2022 and some of the same issues with a particular emphasis on these labor issues. I have not talked much about those. And in part, as I'm going to explain in the next episode, those issues are really underdeveloped. But I, I think we have to look at those issues with a clear eye and with the benefit of history. And history suggests that no matter how things seem to be moving on the athletes' rights front, the powerful institutional stakeholders wind up on the backside of these firestorms pretty much intact. That's been the pattern. I think that's still the pattern. Even with the Austin case, even with the failed Senate campaign, even with the name, image, and likeness debacle, the Power Five are going to come back with a new strategy on all of these issues, and they have a hell of a lot to lose, and that gives them enormous motivation. Never underestimate the power of motivation. Who's hungrier? Those who are challenging the status quo or those who want to preserve the status quo? Who's more powerful? Those who are challenging the status quo or those who want to preserve the status quo? And who's working the hardest when nobody's looking? And those are important questions. All right, so there you have it. And I'll close this episode out. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Mm -hmm.